Uh, so I hope you have your Bible. If you don't, there should be one in the pew uh, nearby you. Grab one, and you can turn to Acts chapter 6. And I have titled this message, A History of Resistance. A History of Resistance. And I'll talk more about what that means and obviously how that applies to us as we go through it. But uh, just let me take a moment and let's pray that the Lord would bless this teaching. God, we love You and we thank You for Your Word and we thank You that we have the confidence. We know that when we come here together and we seek Your face and Your Word, You will meet with us. And truly, Your Holy Spirit is here and uh, we thank You for that wonderful time of praise and worship. And now, God, I ask as we move into the, the teaching portion of the service that Your Spirit would continue to move in the hearts and the minds, the lives of all those who are here there are many people and many different places in their lives. And God, You know the needs that are represented in this room. And so I ask that You would minister to each person right where they are at. If they don't know You, God, I pray that You would speak to their hearts today, that You would draw them to Yourself. And for those of uh, us in here who are struggling or hurting or just exhausted, whatever the issue or the care may be, Lord, I pray that You would minister to hearts through Your Word today. The people have come here to, to hear from You, to seek Your face, and I pray that You would bless that. Please speak through me, God. Help me, Lord. Use me for Your glory. May I preach Christ and may I preach Your truth accurately and with conviction, with power, with love, with reverence. And may You be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So, first chapter is only 15 verses, and then the second chapter is 60 verses, and it really is just one long scene, and so I want to cover all of it. So there's going to be a good bit of reading, and um, the, the second chapter, chapter 7, almost the entire chapter is a guy named Stephen who we're going to meet. It is a sermon that he's preaching, and that in a large way, is what Acts is. It's a lot of sermons there in the early church, uh, predominantly given by the apostles, Peter and, and Paul, so on and so forth. But here we have this man that we're going to meet today named Stephen. And so uh, we'll learn all about him in chapter 6. But in chapter 7, as I said, it's going to be one really long sermon, and he kind of recounts a lot of history from the Old Testament, a lot of history from Genesis and Exodus and so forth and so on, and I'm not going to go as far into detail as I would like to with that. In a lot of ways, it's going to be very much just brushing over it and overview, which is really hard for me to do. That's very painful. This is kind of a very new thing for me, moving through the, the, the Word this fast. But let me say this. If you come to Wednesday nights, we'll be going into these same things in much more detail, because much of what Stephen is going to be preaching on is uh, in Genesis and Exodus and on through the Old Testament there. So if these are things that interest you, if they are things that you find that you don't know much about but you would like to know, then hey, uh, be of good cheer. You can come on Wednesday nights and we'll spend more time learning about those things. So we're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. And we're going to look at a problem that arises here in the very early days of the church. The church has just begun and we've seen that it is growing exponentially. The apostles are moving with great signs and wonders. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. Last week we talked about 
hypocrisy that, that sprung up right away. And God dealt with it very severely. He had to, to cut that cancer out of the church. And He did so, uh, as I said, severely with Ananias and Sapphira. And now we, we continue on and we're going to kind of enter into another little issue that arises that really could um, disrupt the unity that is happening in the church. Now, as I said... This is titled A History of Resistance, and this is uh, really, we're considering how the nation of Israel throughout the Scriptures have um, rejected God so many times throughout their history, the work of God, the move of God, as He was trying to work in their lives. So I want that to really, I want you to hold on to that. Uh, that is probably the number one application of this whole thing. And again, we'll get there. That is, do not reject, do not resist the work that God wants to do in your lives. And that means very different things for different people. If you don't know God, there's a wonderful work God wants to do in your life. He wants to save you. He wants to make you new. Don't reject that. Don't resist it. If you are a believer, if you've been born again, God wants to grow you. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to purify you, make you more like His Son. Don't reject that. Don't resist that. And so that's kind of the overarching theme here. And unfortunately, Israel really had a, a history of rejecting God and the move of God. And so we'll get into that as we go. But verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here we have in these days the uh, church was growing, the the disciples were multiplying and there was a complaint that rose up and it was that the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what does that mean? Well, first off, a Hellenist was a Jew who had really been uh, influenced by Greek culture. That would be the dispersion. That's a Bible word. You may hear it. And the, the Jewish nation went through hard times throughout history, and there were times where people would come in, uh, neighboring countries, and would drive them out of their land, and they would uh, go to far and distant lands, and they would maintain their, their nationality, their Jewish tradition, but they would at the same time absorb the, the culture around them. And at that time, the Greek culture was, was very dominant because of the influence of Alexander the Great. And so they were Jews who had uh, somewhat of a, a Greek bent, if you will, and so they were called Hellenist. And there was a complaint that these Hellenist Jews were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, what is that? Well, First Timothy tells us that uh, there are... There's a criteria for, for widows in the church that who would be, they would be cared for by the church. The church would support them. And there were certain qualifications that they had to meet to fall under that. So the church would take care of the widows, especially in these early days. They would provide for them financially and their, their daily rations of food. And so there was a complaint here that the, the Jews were getting special treatment and the Hellenist Jews were getting looked over. And so this came to the ears of the apostles and 
they said, look, um, it's not good for us to leave the Word of God to serve tables. And when they say serve tables, that doesn't mean like what we might think when we hear of a waiter or someone who's serving in a restaurant. They would have tables, most likely, that would sit at the front of an area and there would be a line and people would come up and they would get their daily rations or, or money, whatever it may be, that, that they receive. And as honorable as a service as that is, how, as noble as that is, the apostles understood that that was not their ministry. Their ministry was to give themselves to understanding the Scriptures and being able to teach the church and to be able to go out and preach the Gospel, lead people to Christ, and to be able to plant churches. That was their ministry. And that's what it meant when they said that we don't want to leave the Word of God to wait tables. That sounds kind of backwards, uh, especially as we've gone through Mark and we hear what Jesus said over and over about serving and being the, the servant of all and these men truly were servants, but they understood their place, where they were to serve. And that was what was happening. So they uh, uh, demonstrated leadership, and they said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to find seven men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, a good reputation, and set them over this matter. So we kind of see this as the beginning stages of uh, deacons. That's another word that you may hear, and it uh, comes from the Greek word diakonos, and it just means servant. And so there are people in the church that are recognized as especially gifted in this area and even called to be uh, a deacon. And that looks different in different churches, and we will discuss that at some point, but some would say that this is the beginning stages of that, and it won't be too long before we raise up some deacons in this church. We have, we have some folks that we uh, think really fit the criteria, and as I said, in the coming weeks we'll talk about that, and we're looking to to raise up folks and we always are it's our desire to be a church that raises people up and puts people in the game and this is just one of many areas where people are able to use their gifts to be used of the lord and our heart is to see all of you serving the lord in your in your place god has a very special place for you all in in his church a place to serve and to use your gifts for the goodness and the health of the body and so the disciples were leading well here, the apostles. And they said, look, this is, there are qualifications here. You know, They weren't saying, look, let, let, let some bum go change the trash. That wasn't their, their approach at all. They understood that every area was special, every area was important, and they needed people who fit the bill, people who were qualified, people who were full of wisdom and full of the Spirit. This was a wonderful opportunity to serve the Lord, and they found good people who fit that. All right, And they said, we're going to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So priority is crucial. It's critical. And they, they understood where they fit and what their ministry was. And so let that be a lesson to us. Do you know where you fit? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing? It's a, it is a constant fight, especially for pastors. There are so many things that I could be given to. Wonderful, noble works and uh, there are times where I could even feel guilty for not doing this or that over there but I know what God has called me to and I have to prioritize that could be a word for somebody in here today maybe you're doing something you shouldn't be doing and you're feeling bad about it but you need to just be set free from that you need to understand where you fit and what you're supposed to be doing maybe there's someone in here who isn't doing anything and God has somewhere for you to be he has a work for you to do he has a purpose for you to serve I want to encourage you get in the game Get in the game. Be used of the Lord. It's necessary for the body of Christ. They understood that. All right, well, moving on. Now we're going to meet this guy, Stephen. Verse 5, 
Now the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, uh, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they sat before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So we hear seven names here, and really two of them are significant to us, Stephen and Philip. We'll see Philip again here in a chapter or two. He's really a powerful evangelist. But all, um, the rest of chapter seven, uh, 6 and 7 are going to be given to this guy, Stephen, in particular. Now what's interesting to me is these are all um, Greek or Hellenistic names that are listed. So there's good wisdom here. The issue was that the Hellenists were being neglected, so they chose what appears to be seven Hellenists to step in and to uh, remedy the situation. So there was great wisdom there. And so as these guys stepped in and did what they were supposed to do, as they met the need, the word spread, the disciples multiplied, there was good leadership, the body was doing its part, there was help, there was growth. So much so that even the priests, it says that the priests were obedient. That means the the, the priests there in the temple were actually being converted to Christ. They were coming to Christianity. Well, this is not good for Stephen. I mean, it is. It's wonderful. He's being used mightily, but there are people who don't like it. And so that's what we're going to see now. Stephen is going to be apprehended. He's going to be arrested for uh, the, the way that God is using him. So verse 9 then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. So that's the, the end of chapter 6. And so we have these freedmen... We have these uh, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, people from Asia and Cilicia. So these are different people groups from different synagogues, it would appear. And um, what a synagogue was is, uh, you'll recall towards the end of the Old Testament that the Babylonians came in and they took the people of Israel out. They conquered the land and they took them into captivity for 70 years. So they were far away from their homeland. So they had to come up with a new system of worship. Basically, the temple was no longer... They were away from their temple. So they, they started to form little communities, little gatherings that they called synagogues. And there had to be at least 10 believing Jewish men to have a synagogue. And they would come together and they would read from the scrolls. They would pray together. That was how they tried to keep their community tight and keep their traditions going. Well, when they came back from Babylonian captivity, they continued on in this. So there were synagogues everywhere. And we know that Jesus would go, as was the custom, on the Sabbath day, and He would teach in the synagogues. He would do His thing. So at this point, Stephen has gone out. He's filled with the Spirit. 
He's preaching Christ. And all these local synagogues, these leaders and people of the synagogues don't like it. And they're coming out and they're doing their best to contest with Stephen. They're trying to fight against him, but they can't. He's moving so powerfully in the Spirit that they just cannot go toe-to-toe with Stephen. They can't do battle with him. They can't argue against anything he's saying. He's on a whole nother level. So what do they do? They conspire against him. They just bring people in who make up false stories. And it's almost exactly like what happened to Jesus. Same thing. They could not contend with Jesus, so they brought in false witnesses who spoke false things against Jesus, and it it really didn't stand. And even the charges that they brought against Jesus are very similar to what is brought against Stephen here. Now, this is very important, guys. You guys have to get this. In order to really understand the point of this very long sermon that he's getting ready to launch off into, you need to pay close attention to the false charges that they bring against him. So it says here that they said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. Moses was the one who gave them the law. Moses received the law from God and wrote it down. And we have the first five books of the law in our Bible. That is Moses. They really respected that. They said that he spoke blasphemy against God. That is to say that he spoke very disrespectful words. He said wrong things, bad things against God. He sinned against God and His law. And they stirred up the people. And then down in verse 14 it says, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. So those were the charges that they brought against Stephen. And it's similar to what they said about Jesus, because remember they said, we heard him say that he'll destroy this temple and build it in three days. And so they accused him of speaking against the temple. That was what they, they used. So they said Stephen is speaking blasphemous words against Moses, our traditions, against the law, against God, against the temple, this holy place. And so that's the charge, and it's important for us to to catch that. Now let me just say this. These aren't entirely false. Uh, They are false, um, but the reality is is Jesus uh, did change things. You know, Jesus said, look, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to do away with it. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill the law. And Jesus kept the law perfectly because nobody could keep the law. We couldn't keep the law. We were, we're damned by the law. That's what the law of God was for. The law was set for so that we could see that we cannot meet God's standard. That's, that's the, <clears throat> the purpose of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ultimately. And Christ came to fulfill the law totally on our behalf in our place. So He is the only one and true law keeper. And we are all law breakers. And we know this. And so He kept the law on our behalf. And if we put our trust and our faith in Him and what He has done, that He lived a perfect life, kept the law, but then He died a sinner's death. He died the death that we deserved in our stead. But then He rose again victorious over sin and death because He truly was innocent. And God raised Him from the grave on the third day victorious over sin and death. That is the gospel message. And so we are damned under the law, but we are saved by Christ. We are saved in that He kept the law for us. Isn't that glorious? And so Jesus didn't necessarily come to do away with the law. He came to obey and fulfill the law. But now the law is obsolete. It no longer applies to us. We are in the new covenant. Now we have to put our faith and our trust in the finished work of the cross 
And we have to live for the Lord Jesus. We have to surrender our lives to Him and, and live for His, His will in our lives, His purpose, our plan. That's the new law. And so it's not entirely false what they say, but it is. It is false. And so it says that His face was like an angel. His face was like an angel. They saw Him. And I've always kind of understood that to mean that there was something supernatural happening there. That God's Spirit was on him in such a way that it was very evident by his face that, that something was going on supernatural. And maybe that is the case. One commentator I read simply said that he was so uh, unmoved, so unshaken, so steadfast, so unruffled that his, his countenance was like an angel. Just total peace and total command of the situation. So that's where we leave off in chapter 6. Now we move in to chapter 7. Now, Stephen is going to respond to these false allegations. And what Stephen is basically going to do is he's going to go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis and he's going to work through their history, through the history of the Old Testament. And he's going to show how they are the ones who have in fact rejected and blasphemed against Moses, against the law, against God, against His temple consistently and historically. So he turns it around on them is what happens. They, they accuse him of this, and then they say, how do you plead? And then instead of actually answering the question, he turns it around on them, goes all the way back, rehearses their history for them, and then ends it with the application or really the point of this whole thing. And he says, you are the ones who have always resisted the work of the Holy Spirit. You are the ones who have consistently and historically rejected the move of God, not me. And so that's really the point of this next stretch of Scripture is he's going back and showing from their own law how they were the ones who have actually broken the law. They are the ones who have rejected God. And so that's really the point of this whole thing. And it's sandwiched in between this false allegation and the, the thematic statement or the point of the whole thing at the very end. And so now, verse 1, and as I said, we're going to move pretty quickly, cover large portions of this chapter. He's going to go all the way back to Abraham now. And he's going to go back to the foundation of their, their, their faith. So verse 1, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Okay, so there's a lot there. So he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 where we meet Abram. His name is Abram at this point. And God calls Abram and he says, I want you to leave your home and you're going to go to a far and distant land where I will show you. So at that point, he didn't even know where he was going. He just knows that he was called to go. And so Abraham did that. And it was from Abraham that the whole nation of Israel would come forth. That nation did not exist at this point. It all started with one single person, 
Abraham. And his name at this point was just Abram. And that, that means exalted father. And later his name would be changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, which was strange because he didn't have any children and he was very old. And so he was given a promise by God that his offspring would be like the, the stars in the sky. And so it really took a lot of faith for him to believe that because he was already past the age of, of, uh, of having children. And then it was another 25 years before he actually did have the child of promise, which was Isaac. And so there was this great promise given to Abraham of this possession that would be his, but he never actually saw it. He did have the promised child, Isaac, in his old age, around uh, 100 years old, I believe it was, maybe even older than that, but um, he never did see the land. In fact, he had to pay for the place where his wife was buried and where he would be buried. He had not received the possession yet, but the promise was given. And God foretold of a time when his descendants would go through this horrific bondage. And we understand that to be uh, in the beginning of Exodus where Moses steps on the scene. And we're going to look at that in a few minutes. So here's the foundation of it all. Stephen takes them back to Abraham and he points out how Abraham received the promise of God and he went out in faith. Now, verse 8. This is where we start to see the theme of rejection happen. We're going to look at um, Joseph. Many of us are familiar with Joseph. He's going to be kind of the key of this next passage. So verse 8, Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac, that was the, the promised child, Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob. So when Jacob, uh, Isaac came of age, he married and um, had Jacob. And then Jacob, when he came of age, he had the twelve patriarchs. Still in verse 8 there. All right, verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into slavery, but God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him the governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. All right, so now we're moving rapidly in the story. Abram finally goes out. Abram becomes Abraham. He has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has the 12 patriarchs. Okay, those are what we know as the, the 12 sons of Jacob. And it was their, their tribes, their clans that went out and became the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we call it Israel because Jacob... The grandson of Abraham's name was changed. God changed his name from Jacob, which meant hill catcher, to Israel, which means governed by God. So he became Israel and he had 12 sons. And that was when we started saying the children of Israel. You understand? You tracking with me? And so as time went on, they would actually go in and possess a land for themselves 
and then the land would be divided up into 12 different allotments, and that would actually become the nation of Israel. And it all came from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. Those sons had families that grew, and they became tribes, and they went out, they took this land, and that became the nation of Israel. Just in a real brief overview, that's, that's what happened. Now, when the 12 sons of Jacob came up, one of the sons, Joseph, was hated by all the other brothers. They hated him. They despised him because he really did receive favoritism from his father. And so they conspired against Joseph and they plotted and they were going to kill him, but they didn't. Instead, they sold him into slavery and then tricked their father Jacob into thinking that he had been killed by wild animals. So this is when we begin to see this theme of rejection popping up. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Now, God had mercy. God was gracious towards Joseph. And when Joseph was sold off into slavery, we know the story, uh, God blessed him and he actually rose to power in Egypt and became second to Pharaoh. And then there was a famine in his home country and his brothers actually came to Egypt looking for grain and they found out that Joseph actually rose to, to power in Egypt and they were very fearful. They thought that Joseph was going to surely have them killed but he didn't. He was merciful towards them. And he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so this is kind of the first instance where we start to see this, according to Stephen, the rejection of Israel. Now we're going to look at Moses. And he spends the most time talking about Moses. Now remember, Moses, that's what they said. This guy has spoken blasphemous words against Moses. So Stephen says, really? I've blasphemed against Moses. Okay, all right, well, let's, let's take a look at this. So, Stephen's still speaking, verse 17. But when the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So now he's recounting Exodus, the story of Exodus. Now, I told you that the, the brothers of Joseph came to Egypt because they were coming for grain. And they found out Joseph was there and that he was now in power. And so Joseph had his family to stay in Egypt. So they stayed in Egypt at this point and they grew. And they grew to a very large multitude, a million or two. And so this happened over a period of about 400 years. So from Jacob's death at the end of Exodus to Moses coming on the scene, excuse me, at the end of Genesis, to Moses coming on the scene in the beginning of Exodus, there was about 400 years and the nation was growing there in Egypt. Well, the Pharaoh that was in power when Joseph was alive and in power really loved Joseph and loved his family. But it says here that another Pharaoh rose into power, and he was paranoid, really. He was concerned about this large group of, of Jews, and he was afraid that they might actually take over. So he put them under harsh bondage. And so that's what has happened here. And Moses was nearly killed as a baby, but he was spared. And, and believe it or not, it was the, uh, Pharaoh's daughter who actually took Moses in and uh, 
he grew up in the Pharaoh's house basically and was, was trained in all the wisdom and might of the Egyptians. Now verse 23. Now when he was 40 years old, Moses, he's 40 years old at this point, it came into his heart to visit his brethren and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God was to deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you do wrong to one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Okay, so uh, Moses is, is 40 years old now. He's a strong man. And he kind of sensed, he understood on some level that he was going to be a ruler and he was going to lead the, the nation of Israel. And so he kind of set out to do this on his own. And he saw an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew and he stepped in and he killed the Egyptian. So he kind of went out on his own and pride and he committed this, this act of murder. Well, the next day he sees two uh, Jewish guys fighting and he tries to step in and de-escalate the situation. And one of them looked at him and said, you know, who made you a judge over us? Who made you a ruler? Do you want to kill me like you did that Egyptian yesterday? Well, Moses didn't expect that and it freaked him out. So he ran. He ran. He escaped from Egypt because he would most certainly be a fugitive now. Now, he thought that they would just follow his lead, but they didn't. They rejected him. And so he goes out into the wilderness, to the backside of a desert. We call that Moses' BSD degree, the backside of the desert. You know, he had to go away for 40 more years where he was humbled. And when he was 80 years old, God actually came to him. And that's what we're going to look at next in the burning bush. And actually God commissions Moses to go back to Egypt and to lead his people out of bondage. So here was the first time when Moses uh, tried to step out and assist the people, and they rejected Moses. All right, verse 30. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight as he drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So now we have the scene of the, the burning bush in Exodus. So Moses is 80 years old. He's a shepherd in the wilderness. He sees this bush. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And he approaches it and hears a voice coming from the, the fire. And it's the, the angel of the Lord. And he says, take your shoes off for where you stand is holy ground. And at this point, he commissions Moses to go and to lead the movement to set his people free and to 
to deliver them, to rescue them out of Egypt. We notice that classic scene where he says, you know, who am I going to tell them sent me? And he says, tell them that I am sent me. I am who I am. The great I am. That, that happened right here. So now it's official. Moses has been commissioned by God. And Stephen highlights the fact that they had already rejected Moses. And this is something that would be a very regular part of Moses' ministry in life as regular rejection and complaining uh, and disputing from the very people he was called to lead. So Moses did that. He came in. He took them out of Egypt. They went off into the wilderness. And we, all, we know that they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. So Moses' life, the first 40 years in Egypt, the second... 40 years in the, in the desert, in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then the last 40 years of his life was spent leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, the wilderness wandering. And that's what we kind of talk about now. So verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now that's actually from Deuteronomy 18.15. That is Moses prophesying of Jesus Christ that there would come the prophet, the great prophet whom you shall hear. Just hold that in your mind. That's verse 37. Now verse 38. This is he speaking of Moses who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. So there it is again. There's that idea. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Then God turned and gave them up to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away to Babylon. Okay, so now they're out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he's gone for 40 days and he's receiving the law of God. Well, while he's gone, the children of Israel back in the camp said, man, Moses is gone. We don't know where he went. We don't know if he's coming back. So they go to Aaron, the, the priest, and say, make us a God to worship. Just like that, they turn away from God. They had just been delivered. Moses has only been gone for probably a couple of weeks and they're already ready to reject everything and turn away from God. And so they, they accumulate all this gold. Aaron fashions a golden calf and they begin to worship this thing. So already they are rejecting God just like this. They are turning away to false idols. They looked back to Egypt with longing in their heart. They wanted to go back. They rejected God and started worshiping this idol while Moses was up on Mount Sinai to get the law. This was really their history. Over and over these kinds of things happened. And Stephen is reminding them of this. He quotes Amos there where he talks about how when they were in the wilderness, they took up the tabernacle of Moloch, the star of uh, Remphan and images that you worshipped. They were worshipping the sun, the moon, stars in the wilderness, all the way from the wilderness to the captivity in Babylon. They had a history of idol worship. It was just something that they fell back into over and over and over again. And Stephen is reminding them of that. 
Now, Stephen's going to turn his, temple to the, uh, his attention to the temple. Excuse me. You'll remember that was another one of the things that they accused him of. They said, you know, this guy spoke in blasphemous words against God, Moses, the law, and this holy place, the temple. So now he's going to address the temple. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all things? So Stephen demonstrates his great knowledge and respect for God's earthly temple. And he talks about how all the way back in the days of Moses, when it was just a little tent, it was just a little dwelling place that they carried through the wilderness, all the way through Joshua, David, to Solomon, when he built the glorious and grand temple. He rehearsed all of that history. But then Stephen turns it around on him. Because they had accused Stephen of dishonoring God by dishonoring God's temple. But Stephen says, you have dishonored God by thinking that you can confine the glorious God to a building. And he quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And so he turns even that around on them. He says, you think that I have blasphemed the temple, but you've blasphemed God by thinking God Himself could actually be confined to a building. They brought God down to that level. So again, I mean, they just can't do anything with Stephen. He turns it around on them, point after point after point. So now, after all of this, after he takes their indictment, he says, oh yeah, you're charging me of these things. Let me take you all the way back to the beginning of your history and walk you through all these years of rejection by you and your fathers. And then now he's going to lay forth an indictment against them. They basically said, how do you plead? And he didn't plead. He turned around and he... Prove, he, had, he went on to prove their guilt to them, and now he's going to close with this stinging indictment. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And so he gives them, I mean, this is as scathing and offensive as it can possibly be to this audience that he is speaking to. And he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. That is rebellious, absolutely unwilling to, to uh, surrender to God. And he's basically calling them non-Jews. The word Gentile, it means anyone who's not a Jew. And the, many of the Jews especially at this time, they just thought they were it, and anybody who wasn't a Jew, they were the off-scouring of the, of the earth. They were dogs. They were worse than dogs. That's how they saw it. And he's saying, the people that you look down, you're worse than them. You're worse than them. He said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And guys, that's the point right there. That was the point of all of this, like I said. They charge him uh, with blaspheming Moses and the law, he takes them back to the beginning and proves how they were the ones who have actually done it all along. And then he says, because you always resist the Holy Spirit. 
You have always rejected God. And you are doing it here and now. Which one of your fathers that you esteem so great did not persecute the prophets? Did not kill the prophets? And now you're guilty of the same thing because you have betrayed and murdered the Son of God. You know, their fathers had done wrong, but they have done so much worse. It wasn't the prophets that they persecuted. It was the Son of God Himself. And He lays the guilt right back at their feet. So we're going to close here in just a second. I've got a few more verses to cover. We're going to close, but I just want to hit on this right here and now. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't. Because you can. And the Scriptures say that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the work of the Spirit in our lives. Quench it like pouring water on a fire. We can put it out. You know, when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and you reject it, that voice gets softer and softer. You hear it less and less. You become more callous, more numb, more hardened to the work and the movement of God. That's something that we want to, we want to cherish that. We want to protect it. When God speaks to you, obey it. Listen to it. Respond to it quickly. Don't argue. Don't reject. Don't resist. Respond. And there are people in here I know who don't know the Lord. And God is speaking to you right now. The Holy Spirit is trying to get a hold of you. He wants to save you. He wants to save you. Don't reject that. Don't resist. There are Christians in here who are in sin and you know it. You've got things in your life you need to get out. You are not right with God. Your sin is, is hindering and affecting what you could be experiencing in your walk with the Lord. Do not resist the Holy Spirit when He is speaking to you. Don't do it. Respond. Obey. Surrender. Submit to the Lord. He is good. He is worthy of all of our trust. Worthy of all of our obedience. He knows what is best for us. And I can never ever think of a time when I thought I regret obeying the Lord. There are a lot of things I can think I regret doing. I wish I would not have done that. Obeying the Lord, listening to the leading of the Lord, listening to the Holy Spirit has never been one of those times that I regretted. In fact, I want more of that. That's my prayer daily. Lord, take me deeper. I want to know You more. I want to love You more. I want to obey You more, serve You more. If God is speaking to you today, my friend, do not resist. Do not resist. Well, they didn't heed Stephen's rebuke. They did resist. Verse uh, 54 here. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at Him with their teeth. But He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at Him with one accord. And they cast Him out of the city and they stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we will later know as Paul. Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So they didn't listen. What did they do? They stopped their ears and raised their voices. You know what? I've done that before. I've been in a situation years ago in my Christian walk where I was in a place I didn't need to be. And instead of thinking about what was happening and what, um, where I was at before the Lord, I literally started to just like try to block it out. And then I realized what was happening. 
And I knew that the enemy was doing that. The enemy was trying to drive me away from God. The enemy wanted me to close my ears and to raise my voice and to block God out altogether. And I knew it in a moment what was happening. And I turned around and I cried out to God. And I said, God, please help me. Please. And God did. He was mighty to save, quick to respond, and turned my heart in a moment. It was glorious. God, God helped me. God saved me. But know that. The enemy wants to drive you away from God. God wants, you to, wants to draw you to Himself. When He's convicting you, when He's speaking to you about sin or something that you're caught up in, it's because He wants to draw you to Him. He wants to get that stuff out of your life. He wants you close. When you feel like you have to push away, that's the enemy. That's the enemy trying to condemn you and guilt you and say, no, no, you need to get away from God. And so be very aware of that. And these guys, they did just the opposite. They lifted their voices, plugged their ears. They ran towards Him with one accord and they stoned Him. They beat Him to death with stones. And that still happens today. They do that now in, in other places in the world. Now they'll bury them up to their neck in the ground and then they just smash their heads in. I'm sorry, I know that's graphic. But that's what was going on. That's what happened. Uh, they, they beat Him to death with rocks, basically. Uh, for his testimony of Christ. He's the first Christian martyr after Jesus here that is recorded for us. The first one, there will be many more to come, but he's the first to die for his testimony. And he died in such a Christ-like fashion. You know what's interesting? It says he looked up to heaven and saw Jesus standing beside the throne. It's the only time you hear that, standing before, by the throne. He's always sitting. And I've heard it said that he was standing there because he was receiving Stephen into, into heaven, into the kingdom. And Stephen saw that and he worshipped and glorified God. You know, there's been so many stories throughout history of Christians who have been burned at the stake or led off to the cross to be crucified and they were singing. They were singing to God. And that's just it's something that we don't understand. It's beyond us. That's, that's God. It's supernatural. And it was happening here. Stephen saw the Lord. He was bold. He was filled with the Spirit. And his last words were, do not charge this sin against them. That is beyond me, guys. I don't... That's, that, is, that is something that is so spiritual and beyond the natural man. And that was what Christ said when he was being nailed to that cross. Remember? Forgive them for they know not what they do. And so Stephen died in a very Christ-like way in a very Christ-honoring way. It costed Stephen his life to honor the Lord and to do the right thing. And for many of us, it doesn't cost us much of anything. And yet we still find it hard to just do the right thing, to just walk with the Lord, to obey the Lord, to serve the Lord. We just kind of give him the leftovers, the bare minimum. It cost Stephen his life. It cost him everything. You know. So I just want to close on that note. Let us be people who listen to the Spirit of the Lord. We don't plug our ears. We cry out and we humble ourselves and we obey and we worship and we serve Him. Amen? We are not hard-hearted and we are Christ-honoring to the death because it's all about Jesus. This life means nothing. This world has nothing. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His kingdom. It's all about living for Him and serving His purposes. There's nothing, nothing greater than that. Nothing greater than that. Heavenly Father, we love You and we thank You for the examples that we see in the Scriptures. And we see the right example. We see the wrong example, God. We want to be people who listen to the Holy Spirit. People that surrender our lives to, to God when, he's, when You're calling. And we want to be people who obey you when you're speaking to us lord we want to have pure and innocent and righteous lives before you father so impressive how this stephen would would go all the way to the death for you god and so help us lord 
most of us in this room have not been called to die for You, but we have all been called to live for You. Help us to do that. Help us to know what that means, what that looks like, and how we can do that in a greater way. So we love You, Lord. We thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.